scripture reading this morning, and we continue in the book of Titus, where Paul is instructing Titus how to establish the church in Crete. And so Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, <coughs> hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of the works done by righteousness in us, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Amen. Please keep your, please keep your Bibles open there uh, so you can track along and, and see what God's word has to say for yourself. And let me just pray for us as we come to consider um, how these things apply to our everyday life. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you reign and that you rule, uh, that we have that assurance and that confidence. We thank you that you're a God who has revealed yourself uh, in your word uh, and ultimately in Jesus. We pray that you'd humble our hearts uh, just now before your word. Help us to hear, but not just with our ears, with our hearts, uh, that we may believe these things and respond uh, in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You and I are called to make a difference in the world. We are called to make a difference in the world. Uh, some of us maybe will be sitting and going, yes. I want to make a difference. I want to change things and build things and invent things and, and transform things. I want to be a difference maker. Or maybe the other side of the room will be thinking, no, I, I just want to get on with things quietly in the, in the background, uh, just privately going about my business. I don't want to make a, a fuss. To the first person, the one who's eager to make a difference, Titus 3 this morning says that we primarily make a difference by being a certain kind of person, not by doing certain things. To the second person, though, Titus 3 says that our faith, our godliness, is not just a private thing. It's not just a home thing or a church thing, as we've already thought about in Titus. 
It's unavoidably public. The question is not if we will make a difference, but how or what kind of difference we will make by how we live our lives. These verses are all about how we make a difference, how we make a godly difference in the world. So yes, we can do great things, and it's not wrong to aspire to change things or build things or invent things or any of those things. But the biggest difference we'll make in this world is by being good to all people, a goodness defined by God and which flows from the goodness that God has shown us in saving us. And in some ways, good is the big word for today. We make a difference by being good towards all people, a goodness defined by God and that flows from the gospel. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you'll see that these verses call us to be ready for every good work in the world. Are you ready? Are you ready to do good towards all people? What does that specifically look like? What is our motivation? Well, that's what we're going to see. As a church, these verses are framed, if you notice, they're framed in the we. These are things we're called to do together, to figure out together. Here is our calling. Here is, as you've noticed already, here is our gospel story. Here as well, along with chapter 2, is a significant chunk of our evangelism strategy. Reminding one another, verse 1, reminding one another how to live a godly life, not just in the home and in the church, but in the world. That's what verses 1 to 2 are about this morning. So that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Perhaps you're not a Christian or you're just figuring that out. Here's how faith in Jesus, these verses, here's how faith in Jesus makes a real difference in the world. Christianity is not some kind of weird, archaic, irrelevant religion. Its virtues are the bedrock of our society, whether we choose to acknowledge that or not. Its virtues make for a peaceful and prosperous society. They flow from the character of God and his saving work in Jesus. The invitation for you this morning is to come and see how good God is, how good the life he calls us to live is, and the salvation that he offers. So big response this morning for you and me from this passage is this. Be good to all people because of God's goodness in saving me. Be good to all people because of God's goodness in saving me. First thing we see this morning, being godly in the world means being good towards all people, verses 1 to 2. If you look down again at verses 1 to 2, let's just read them again. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people, to be ready for every good work. We've seen this idea of doing good over and over again. Elders are to be lovers of good. False teachers are unfit for anything good. Older women are to teach younger women what is good. Titus is to model, is to be a model of good works. And we saw last week in verse 14 that we are to be zealous for good works. And then verses 1 and 2 show us what that goodness looks like in society, in everyday life, in the world. And on the surface, if, as you read those things, you know, speak evil of no one, be gentle, don't quarrel, they don't really seem very groundbreaking, do they? But in the often harsh culture that we live in, these things are deeply needed. These things make a real difference. They aren't things which come naturally, which is why verse 1 begins with, remind them. I don't know about you, but they don't come naturally to me. 
We need reminded of these things. We need to insist on these things. Whether it's in the workplace or the school or college with friends, we often slip, don't we, into being insubordinate rather than submissive. We slip into being lazy about doing good to others rather than being ready. We slip into complaining and gossiping rather than building up. We slip into getting into disputes and disagreements rather than making peace. We slip into being inconsiderate towards others rather than showing perfect courtesy. We find ourselves this morning getting into trouble with those in authority over us, constantly in friction with others, finding ourselves always criticizing and complaining about others, thinking we are better than others, which is all of us to some degree, then we need to be reminded of these things. We need to be reminded of these things. Maybe think of it this way. Here are two verses in the coming week as you get ready to go to work or to go out into the community or as you go to school. Here are two verses maybe to stick on your desk or to put a note in your lunchbox, maybe even for your kids. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. There's something to add to your morning routine as you get ready, right? Get ready for work, for school, whatever it might be. Make sure you're ready to do those things as well. So let's just drill down into those a little bit. What does it look like to be good with respect to authority, verse 1, and then with respect to everyone in verse 2? Well, being good with respect to authority means we are submissive and obedient. It's the two words that's used there. And in mind here, then, the authority is particularly kings and governments and ruling authorities, or maybe in our context, it is things like police and council and the Scottish Parliament. We could extend that authority, it's particularly those kinds of authorities, but we could extend that to the kind of authority that parents have in the home, that leaders have in the church, that maybe teachers have in the school. And it's important to remember that we must make sure that authority in the home is evident and submitted to, if submission and obedience isn't learned in the home with respect to parents, it will almost certainly lead to a level of chaos for children in the world. I saw that just this week. I was in a cafe and a bunch of kids, you know, they're not bad kids, but just causing havoc in the cafe. And there's a good chance maybe that for various reasons, they just haven't learned how to submit to authority. And that's evident itself in everyday life. But really, speaking specifically about governing authorities, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 teach us that governing authorities have had their authority instituted by God. It's an authority to do what? To punish evil and to promote what is good. Our submission to that authority or our resistance to that authority is a resistance to God himself. Okay? Not pretending that these verses aren't kind of jarring to us, okay? Our resistance to governmental authority in whatever shape it takes is a resistance to what God has appointed. How do we submit and obey to the authority of the day? Well, it looks like obeying the law of the land. It means not bending the law. But it's more than just not bending the law or breaking the law. It's also a heart posture of honoring those in authority over us. As we're called to in 1 Peter 2, we're to honor the emperor. Everyone finds those things easy, right? No. Hence why we need reminded of these things. Hence why they're so 
transformative and set us apart so differently from the world around us. All joking aside, this is one area, if we're really honest, where it's okay to not do too well, isn't it? This is one area where we don't do well in. Yes, we can disagree with governing authorities. Yes, we can strive for change that aligns with God's moral law. Yes, there is a place for civil disobedience. We must obey God rather than men, of course. But there's a way to do that. There's a way to do that that doesn't degrade and dishonor those in authority over us. When's the last time you spoke positively about those in governing authority over you? Positively, like honored them, prayed for them, as Scripture calls us to. In a culture where politicians only get spoken of in negative terms, in a culture where there is increasing disdain for other authorities, such as the police, where there is daily insubordination and disobedience towards security guards, shopkeepers, teachers, bus drivers, fire service, paramedics, whatever it might be, can you imagine the impact that godly submission and obedience to authority would make in this world? Can you imagine the witness that that would be to the gospel when we tell people why we choose to live like that? Why we choose to respond like that? Of course, consider Christ our example. Christ who submitted himself and honored those in authority over him. He subjected himself even if it meant suffering unjustly, which he did for us and was able to do for us by entrusting himself to a just God. This is one area of the Christian life I think even in the past three or four years has been exposed as really anemic in the Christian life. We have a really poor view of how we are to relate to government. There's something we need to think about more. I'm challenged on that myself. Jesus is our example, our supreme example. And in following his example, we display the gospel. We adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And when we choose to do that, when we choose to submit to and obey to those in governing authority over us, generally it will go well with us. We won't end up in prison. We won't end up being fined. We'll contribute positively to a more peaceful and prosperous society. And by submitting and obeying governing authorities uh, in a way that doesn't dishonor the Lord, we are allowing them and enabling them to more effectively govern our society. We aren't causing them problems. We aren't costing them money. We aren't making the police run around after us. We are allowing them to promote their God-given role to punish evil and promote what's good. And we are to be active in doing good as well. We are to be submissive and obedient, and we're also to be ready for every good work. So we are to be a certain kind of person, but there is also a doing as well. We're to be ready for every good work. We're to serve our communities, our, our neighborhoods, in whatever good ways we can. That starts, first and foremost, by us being godly citizens, by living as citizens according to God's Word, by pointing people to Jesus, by cultivating godly homes. That's how we can contribute to a godly, a, a, a peaceful, orderly society. We can promote order by how we behave, we can serve to foster community. We work hard. How we work in our jobs contributes to the world around us. And we're also called to help our neighbor, particularly those in need. So we're to be submissive, obedient. We're to be ready for every good work. 
That's how we're to be good with respect to authority. What about towards everyone else, towards all people? Well, we see a number of things here in verse 2. We're to speak evil of no one. It means we don't revile, we don't slander, we don't insult, we don't defame anyone. We're to do what Ephesians 4 calls us to, to let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. We're to speak evil of no one and we're to avoid quarreling. We've seen that theme again throughout Titus. Elders are not to be quick-tempered or violent. Bond servants in chapter 2 verse 9 are not to be argumentative. It's easy to be argumentative, isn't it? It's fun sometimes to be argumentative. We're not to be argumentative. We're not to be quick-tempered. We're not to be someone who creates tension and division. Can you imagine if we just did those two things? Spoke evil of no one and avoided quarreling. Can you imagine how different our church and our homes and our society would be? Just those two things, never mind the rest, right? How different they would be if those two things were more prevalent. Those are two negatives, but then there's two positives here as well. We're to be gentle. We're to be fair. We're to be reasonable. We're to be mild. We're to be patient. And we're to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That word for courtesy there could be kind of has the meaning of kindness and humility and meekness about it. We're to be gentle and meek and humble people. Again, something that Jesus exemplified. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Hebrews 5.2 says that Jesus can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset, beset with weakness. That's who he deals with, the ignorant and the wayward. He's gentle towards them. So when we're tempted to be harsh, we must remind ourselves of how we've been treated by Jesus, of the example he set us. And we're to be like this towards our favorite people, our friends, our family. No, towards all people, towards everyone, even those who rub us up the wrong way most, no matter their background, their age, their skin color, their religion, no matter what part of town they come from, we're to be like this towards all people, even when we might not receive it back. So we're to be good with respect to authorities and with respect to everyone. In an anti-authoritarian and harsh culture, these are things which set us apart. These are things which transform society. These are things which ultimately and beautifully adorn the gospel of God to the world around us. Imagine the power of a gospel proclamation backed up by a godly life like this. It's hard to argue against. But these things aren't easy, right? They're not easy. It's not easy to show perfect courtesy toward all people. What is our motivation to do good to all people, especially when people are ignorant and wayward? Our goodness towards others flows simply from the goodness that God has shown to us. It's the second thing we see. Being godly in the world means being good towards all people because of God's goodness 
in saving me. If you look down at verses uh, 3 onwards. So here's our motivation for Paul, like doing this in Titus and other New Testament letters, he starts with the gospel and then says, because of this, behave this way. But in Titus, he likes to reverse it. He says, behave this way because of the gospel, okay? Here's our motivation for doing good to all people. Here's our theological basis. Here's how we're able to do good. And here's your testimony if you're a Christian. This is your story here. Here is why, in verses 4 to 7, here is how and why we are, and the key word here is verse 5. Here is how and why we are saved. Saved. Let's just sit on that for a minute. It's a key word in these verses. John Stott in his commentary of Titus says this, verses 4 to 7 are a single long sentence. The whole sentence hinges on the main verb, he saved us. He says it's perhaps the fullest statement of salvation in the New Testament and it poses the most serious question we could ever ask ourselves or put to anybody else. For Christianity is essentially a religion of salvation. We see that, he, and he quotes two verses, 1 John 4, which says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he's come to do. So we're going to approach these verses 4 to 7 under kind of three headings. You've maybe heard them before. Kind of helpful testimony headings. I was, but God, now I. I was, verse 3, but God, verses 4 to 6. Now I, verse 7. Let's start with I was, verse 3. I was, we were. This is what we once were before Christ. Foolish, disobedient, led astray. We were foolish. We rejected God's wisdom. We rejected God's ways. We were disobedient. We broke God's law. We were led astray. That is, we were deceived by Satan and by our own sinful desires. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, addictions, lusts, loves, whatever it was. We were slaves to those things. We were in shackles to those things. We passed our days in malice and envy. Okay, We didn't just have blips. We didn't just have a bad day. We passed our whole days, all of our days, in malice and envy. We are by nature and by choice disobedient to God, enslaved in our sin, and by consequence, enemies of God. And that enmity, that conflict, isn't just between us and God, but it's also between us and our people. If you look at the end of verse 3, we were hated by others, and we were hating one another. This is our condition outside of Christ. If you are not in Christ this morning, this is your condition. If you are in Christ, this is who you used to be. Here is the lens, if you're a Christian this morning, through which to view your former self. <coughs> it's only when we stop viewing ourselves through the rose-tinted spectacles that we often do and start viewing ourselves through the lens of the gospel, the reality of the gospel, that we will start treating people in the way that verses 1 to 2 call us to. Because so often the reason we don't is because we think we're better than other people. We forget what we once were. We forget how gentle and good that God has been to us. We were once like those around us. In fact, sometimes we still resemble that, don't we? 
Sin still dwells in us. We still resemble those characteristics at time in verse 3. Perhaps you're not a Christian here this morning and you're thinking, verse 3, really? That's what you think of me? That doesn't sound like me at all. I'm not that bad. Well, perhaps you aren't as bad as you can be. The Bible's teaching about sin and depravity is not that we are as bad as we can be, but that every part of us is corrupt. You're not as bad as you can be, but this is still a true reflection of your life. It's a true reflection of my life outside of Christ. Let's not pretend that we're innocent of these things. This is our true state when our standard, this is our true state when our standard is not our own standard or our standard is not the standard of the world. Really? You want the standard of the world to be your standard of goodness? Have you looked around recently? This is our true state when we put ourselves up against the standard of God, His moral law, His Ten Commandments. When we let the light of His law shine on our hearts, this is what we really look like. This is who we really are. Often Christians are accused, aren't they, of thinking that they're better than everyone else. And we can be guilty of that for sure in how we carry ourselves or how we speak about ourselves. If you're truly a Christian, you will never think that you're better than anyone else. And if you're using that as an excuse to to keep you from coming to Jesus, it's time to stop using that excuse because real Christians don't think they're better than everyone else. Real Christians know that verse 3 is what they used to be. It's time to face up to the reality of what the Bible diagnoses as your condition. And it's a freeing thing when you do, because only when we recognize the depth of despair that we were in can we be saved. Here is your and my condition outside of Christ. Here is our spiritual diagnosis, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. Here is why our world is the way it is. Here's why the things you see in the news shouldn't shock you. Here's what our sin looks like and what those who sin against us are like. It's not pretty, but it's reality. And verse 3 is a reality that cannot be fixed by behavioral reform, by just being a better person, by discovering ourselves, by getting some self-esteem, or by pursuing self-help. No, we need saved We need rescued. We need pulled out of the pit of enslavement to sin and the penalty of death. Mark Dever, the pastor, says this, the Bible teaches that you don't need a better you. You need a new you. You don't just need a better you, you need a new you. We need God to step in and rescue us from our sin, our condemnation, our judgment, and from death. And verses 4 to 6 tells us He does. He does. Verse 3 is what we were, but God. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, God steps in to a world like verse 3 to save. Where does our salvation begin? It begins in the very character of God, in His goodness, in His loving kindness. That's where it begins. In our disobedience and foolishness and enslavement to sin, he took the initiative. He steps into the world in Jesus to save us from the sinful disaster that we find ourselves in. 
Why? Because he's good. Because he is good. Because he is loving. Because he is kind. That's who he is. It's his very nature. His love is a holy love. It's a love that cannot dwell with people who spend their days in malice and envy and disobedience. His love is a holy love, which means he can't sweep sin under the carpet. And he doesn't. Instead, he sends Jesus and nails our sin to the cross. He nails our sin to Christ on the cross. Jesus came to bear our sin in his body on the cross to pay its penalty and to enable us to be forgiven and freed. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to save us. It's what we remember in the lead up to Christmas, which we'll be doing soon. Matthew 1, she will bear a son. You call his name Jesus. Why did he come? To save his people from their sins. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of God's word. If we lose sin, if we lose salvation, then we rip the heart out of the gospel, the Bible, and the church, and all we're left with is a dead, dull book of irrelevant moral examples and a church that's reduced to nothing more than a community group. That's all we're left with. We need saved. We need salvation. We need rescue. And in His love, God does that for us in Jesus. On what basis does He save us? Why does He save us? Because of us? No, if you look down. He saved us, verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We couldn't save ourselves. We didn't want to be saved. We couldn't save ourselves. He had to do it for us. It's not because of anything good in us. It's all because of what's good in Him. Many religions and faiths teach that we are saved by being a good person or kind of a half-baked version of that is we're saved, but our good works in some way contribute to our salvation. The Bible says that we're saved by mercy alone. We cannot contribute to our salvation. We need not, because Christ has done it all for us. On what basis are we saved? Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to mercy. By what means does God save us? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God calls us, God awakens us by His Spirit, enabling us to respond to the gospel call. We are saved through the proclamation of God's Word, which the Spirit enables us to understand and to respond to. Titus 3 here describes it as the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Here we see then that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in our salvation. Of course they are. It's one God and three persons. Okay, wrap your head around that. What's the work of the Spirit? It's particularly in our salvation. The Spirit particularly regenerates us. Okay, I'm not sure if you've come across that word before. It's a really important word, and it's a really great word. <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice has gone a bit. Perhaps maybe we think of regeneration in terms of, you know, a town center gets regenerated because it's a bit dilapidated, and the council pumps some money into it. Well, that's just improving 
That's just kind of transforming the, the town center. The regeneration that's spoken about here in the Bible it is nothing like that. It's more akin to resurrection, not transformation. It's being brought from death to life. Or we could think about it as rebirth or new birth. It's what we see in John 3. If you've heard Christians talk about being born again, this is what regeneration is. Regeneration is being born again. We were born, we were conceived in sin, we were born dead in our sin, and the Spirit comes and regenerates us, rebirths us, makes us a new creation. That's how radical the transformation of salvation is. God, by His Spirit, through His Word, calls us out of our sin, pulls us out of our sin and our deadness to grace and salvation in Christ. Our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, able to obey God and to do good. This call, this work of regeneration, part of it involves the Spirit enabling us, as I've said, to hear the gospel and to respond to it. How? Through repentance and through faith. Faith in Christ. We turn from our sin and we turn to Christ by the work of the Spirit. The question for us is this morning, have you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus? If you have, then this is all true of you. If not, then it can be true of you. Turn from your sin today and have this miraculous work of regeneration done in your life. That is described as washing. That's a picture we can relate to, right? We know what it means for something to be washed. That is described as washing speaks to how we are spiritually cleansed of our sin through faith in Jesus. An inward reality that is pictured and symbolized by baptism, an outward reality, something we'll get to see in a few weeks. The Spirit washes us clean of our sin, and that is pictured in the act of baptism. This work of salvation, this work of regeneration is done by the Spirit who has been, what? Poured out on us richly. So Jesus, and, and poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, it's Jesus along with the Father who sends the Spirit into the world. The Spirit then regenerates and dwells believers and changes us to become more like Jesus. That it's been poured out on us richly means that God has not been stingy. Think more like a waterfall, not just a cup of water. That's how he's poured the Spirit out on this world and in our lives. It means that we have, through regeneration, the fullness of the Spirit. We can expect the Spirit to work in us significantly. I was, but God. Where does that all leave us? Verse 7. Now I am, verse 7, justified justified. There's a lot of biblical language here. We shouldn't shy away from it. We should own it, understand it, and treasure it. We are justified, verse 7, which means we are declared righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is credited to our bank account, so to speak. Therefore, we are declared righteous. It's a legal term. We are justified, what? By grace, we didn't earn that righteousness. It was given to us as a gift. 
Grace is God's unmerited favor. We are justified by grace through faith. It's not explicit in the passage here, but it's in Titus 1, verse 1. We respond to the grace of the gospel in faith. Faith is just resting and receiving that righteousness. It's not doing anything to receive it. It's just accepting a gift. It's faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness as the only means of justification. But as Titus presses us towards, we see that true saving faith, nothing can be done to earn our salvation. Faith alone does that, but our faith doesn't remain alone, so to speak. When we are truly believing in Christ, our faith will evidence itself in fruitful good works, the good works that are mentioned in verses 1 to 2 here. That we are justified by grace means, and faith alone means, that when we mess up in verses 1 to 2, our justification, our status doesn't change. It means there's forgiveness. It means that grace never goes away. And what does this all do? What does grace make us? So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Grace makes us heirs, sons and daughters of God. It speaks to adoption. It speaks to our eternal inheritance, which is unfading and undefiled. What is that inheritance? It's the hope of eternal life. Do you see all that we gain? We become sons and daughters of God. We inherit the hope of eternal life. Eternal life, that's what God promises. That's the gift that God gives us at salvation. Verse 8 tells us, and maybe you're thinking, wow, this seems a little bit too good to be true. Verse 8, he steps right in and says, this is trustworthy. This saying is trustworthy. Why? Flip back to verse 2 in chapter 1. Why can we trust that these things are true of us? Why can we trust that when we're saved, this is our reality? Chapter 1, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, that's why you can trust this. God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Your hope is not fiction, it's truth, it's reality. It's been proven in time and space in historic in history through the coming of Jesus. God didn't lie. He sent Jesus. This is not make-believe. We can trust these things. We can hope in these things. So here's what God has done for us. Here are the depths and the riches of our salvation. Here is what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to. Here is the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. Here is the radical rebirth and renewal that God can bring about in your life. If you're a Christian, this is your eternal story. This is your past. This is your present. This is your future. If not, it can be your story. Here is the gospel. Here is salvation. Here is the goodness, the loving kindness, the salvation, the righteousness, the washing, the regeneration, the renewal, the justification, the grace, the mercy, the heirs, the hope, and the eternal life that you're offered in the gospel. Who ever said the gospel is boring, eh? Whoever said it wasn't worth responding to. Treasure these things with all of your heart and your life. Hold on to these truths. 
be changed by them. And remember that here, verses 4 to 7, here is why we can and should treat people with goodness and gentleness because of how God has been eternally good and gracious towards us. Look at what he's done for us. Look at how he's treated us from where we were in verse 3 to where we end up at the end of verse 7. From slaves of sin, disobedient, foolish, to sons and daughters of God who have inherited eternal life. Look at how he's treated us and let us motivate us to treat other people likewise. So do good to everyone because of God's goodness in saving you. Because of how God sent Jesus to save us from our sin and for a life of good works and godliness. Let's be a people, let's be a church who in the week ahead, as we enter Monday morning, are ready, because of the goodness of God, ready for every good work. Let me just pray for us, and then I'm going to invite Derek up to lead us around the Lord's table. Father, we can't do anything but come to you and just give thanks and humility for your goodness and your loving kindness toward us. Father, we thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that you have rescued us, that you poured your spirit out upon us, that you opened our blind eyes, that you replaced our heart of stone with the heart of flesh, that you caused us to be born again. We thank you, Father, for the, the gift of salvation, for the hope of eternal life. Father, would these things humble us? Would these things cause our hearts to rejoice right now? And would these things stir us up towards how we might live towards other people in this world, people who, just like us, are wayward and in need of the gospel, people who were just like us, blind and unable to see. Father, would you open eyes? Would you help us to live in a way which points to Jesus and which proclaims his name?